On February the 21st, 1878, cutting-edge technology was invented in Connecticut. The New Haven District Telephone Company produced a single piece of cardboard. Now, two years earlier, the telephone was invented, and so they had to publish a list of, at that time, only 50 people and businesses who had phones in New Haven, Connecticut. And the list of subscribers to phones was what we would say is the first phone book. The first phone book was invented. And at that time, it was just a list of names because what you did is you connect it to the switchboard operator and she connected you to someone else who had a phone. Think of Sarah in Mayberry, if you've ever watched the Andy Griffith show, and he picks up the phone and says, Sarah, give me whatever, Floyd, whoever. But, but that's the way the phone worked then. And at that moment, there were only 50 people in New Haven, Connecticut, who had phones. And so their names were listed on a single sheet of cardboard. And then in 1883, five years later, in Cheyenne, Wyoming... A company ran out of white paper and began printing telephone numbers on yellow sheets of paper, and the yellow pages were invented five years later. Now, as I say this, I can see it on your face. Half of you are thinking, phone book. What in the world is a phone book? You don't even know what a phone book is. Some of you don't even know that the actual names in your phone have numbers connected to them because you never had to use the numbers. You just used the names. But I remember as a kid when a phone book would come in the mail, and maybe I was a weird kid, nobody else did this, but I would get the phone book and I would scour the names, last names in alphabetical order, and I would make sure that my family's name was in our local phone book, that it was there and our address was correct. And then I would begin to look through and and the people I know and and to make sure that my family and friends, that their names were in there. And then if there was a friend that I I wanted to call, you, you had to get their parents' name, which was sometimes interesting, figuring out, asking my parents, do you know... Uh, my, Chad's uh, parents' last name. Okay, here's his phone number. And then that's how, you, that's how you made phone calls during that time. Sort of ancient Facebook stalking. Ancient in the 80s, 90s. But in our Bible, we see lists over and over that look like the list in phone books. And we ask, why in the world would God put these lists of names in the Word of God? After all, they're God's Word, inspired by the Spirit of God. And every name is important. That's why I don't read them all, because I butcher them when I try to read them. And and I don't think I give the reverence these names should be in the Word of God. But every name represents God's faithfulness. And for the Jew, when they would uh, open up the scroll or the, the, the word of God would be read and these names would be pronounced, they would lean in. They were, they were way more in tune with history than we are. They would lean in to listen for family names. They would lean in to listen for their heritage in these names. They would lean in remembering God's faithfulness to their people. 
God's faithfulness was displayed in their names, and so they would lean in to hear every one of them. And in our passage today in Nehemiah, we see more names listed. And as we've said throughout Nehemiah, he loves inventory. He loves to take inventory of people and numbers and equipment that's used and where the people are working on the walls. And we see more of these names today that represent God's faithfulness. Remember the story of Nehemiah. Around 600 B.C., Jerusalem is is attacked and held captive by the Babylonians. And the people are, are taken from the city of Jerusalem. And they are spread all over the known world. They are in exile. And eventually the Persians come to rule. And kings like Artaxerxes allow the Jews to return home. Because that was a benefit to him. If the Jerusalem economy was running well. And the, the Jews were in good spirits. They, they would have loyalty to him. And so he allows the Jews to return home. And yet Jerusalem during that time, during the time of Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, the, the, the city is still in ruin. And, and a significant part of the city is still dilapidated. The wall that surrounds the city. The wall in Jerusalem separated the people of God from the nations. They were to be holy. They were to be distinct. They worshiped Yahweh. They were not like the idolatrous nations that surrounded them. The wall had significance in all of their life. And a man named Nehemiah was serving Artaxerxes during this time. And his cousin comes to visit him on vacation and Nehemiah wanting to know, what, what is the return to Jerusalem like? What is, it, what is it like in the holy city? Is the city being populated? Is the, has industry returned to the city? And his cousin tells him, no, Nehemiah, the city is still in ruin. And the wall is still destroyed. And Nehemiah, who's just a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, just a Jew with a job, He's not a priest, wasn't even a leader at that time. His heart is broken as he thinks about Jerusalem. And he thinks about the wall around the city and how it represents God's faithfulness. And his heart is broken and he begins to cry out to God that he would be faithful to his people. That he would protect his people. That the glory of Yahweh who promises to be good to his people, that his glorious name would be restored in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem would be secure. That there would be worship in the temple. That the people of God would flock back. And God uses Nehemiah's prayer to use him. Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah on an all expense paid by the Persian government mission trip back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, just a guy, just a, a man with a job in Persia, all of a sudden is a governor in Jerusalem. And he is leading the people of God to, to build back this wall around the city that represents God's faithfulness. And as we've seen throughout the book, he, he confronts all kinds of obstacles 
Before he even gets started, the enemies of God, they are hounding him. They are trying to humiliate him. There are threats of terrorism upon the city. And Nehemiah stands because God is faithful and he's going to be faithful to God in building this wall. There's also division among the people. There's complaining. The work is grueling. But after 70 plus years in captivity and exile, the wall was completed in 52 days by Nehemiah and the workers there. And after the wall was completed, the people renewed their covenant with God. They said that they were going to be faithful to God by obeying his law because he had been faithful to them. And they hear the word of God and they confess their sin and they commit to Yahweh, their faithful God, again. But we see in chapter 11 that this city, Jerusalem, now with the completed wall, the temple is there. This city needs to be occupied. And throughout these chapters, over and over, we see names and numbers that represent those who go to live in Jerusalem. And they represent God's faithfulness to us today. Notice verse 11 now the leader of chapter, uh, notice verse 1 of chapter 11. Notice, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. Now at that time, most of the leaders of Israel, they would move to Jerusalem. They were conducting business as normal there. You would have priests there, official government leaders there. But outside of the city, notice what happens. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And so here they cast lots. Now this was a holy, God-ordained way to determine his will. Many of the priests, they had, they had stones that were used to, to cast lots in this way so the people could determine God's will. And here by doing this, the people outside of the city determine who is going from their towns and villages, who's going to go live in Jerusalem. And notice it's a tenth. Notice they give a tithe of the people from outside of the city to go live in Jerusalem. A tithe of people, flesh and blood people who are going to pack up their lives and move to Jerusalem. And it's to be symbolic of an offering. An offering of people to occupy the city. Now it's still important that people live outside of the city. In towns and villages. In their land. They, they produce crops. They produce commerce. That even kept the city going. So that was important. And, but, but in Jerusalem you almost had a Washington D.C. feel. Outside of the city where people are living, but then you got closer to the city and beyond the walls, there were commerce, there was the judicial system, there was worship, there was festivals that occurred inside the city and the city needed to be occupied. And so the towns and villages give a tithe of people, notice to the holy city. The word holy means to be set apart in devotion. 
And Jerusalem was to be a city set apart in devotion to Yahweh, a city distinct from all other cities because this is the city where God will rest with his people through the rule of his holy king. Jerusalem is the city of the king. And here, this is why the people say, we will go. We will go live in the holy city where God's rule is to be. But notice what happens in verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. There seems to be other people here who said, we'll go also. And they sacrificed their, their life as they know it. The land that they live on, their family, their friends, their jobs, the life of the day, they know it. They say, we will offer that to God by moving to Jerusalem. We will sacrifice. And the people begin to honor everyone who makes that decision. Now, this isn't just some sin Jerusalem disaster relief trip. These are people who say, God has been faithful to us. We see the wall. We know, we know God is fulfilling his promises inside the city. He's being faithful, so we will be faithful, and we will go, and they pack up everything they know to go live in a desolate city yet to be rebuilt for the glory of God. And then in verses 3 through the rest of chapter 11, again, we see list of names, and it's, it is a cut on my pride not to just read through all those names, because y'all keep telling me, you can't do it, we want to hear you do it. I'm not going to do it. Maybe come over to my house for BFG sometime or Bible study, and I'll sit down and just read them all to you personally. But here, this list of names, I do want you to, to look over them, cast your eyes on them. They are descendants of Benjamin, Judah. There are Levites listed here. And these names represent the royal and priestly lines. When, when Israel was once divided, these tribes stayed with the tribe of Judah, God's promised line. And here, these are going to be the main tribes that occupy Jerusalem. There are priests here. Notice there's, there, there are valiant men who are going to go protect the city. There are singers and gatekeepers. And they represent about 46,000 people who will move back to Jerusalem to occupy the city. And remember, the city is still under pagan rule at this time. And they go back to Jerusalem. But what's important here is the names represent God's faithfulness. Jerusalem is nothing without the names. Jerusalem, the holy city, is nothing without these people. And for the Jew, it would be like scrolling through an old church directory. I have all of the churches where I've served, there were these things, college students, that we used to have called directories. And you would have pictures of families in them, and they would have their, their numbers listed below them. So if you wanted to get in contact with someone in the church, you just look through the directory. Now we have Alexio, and as I said earlier, you just stalk people on Facebook, and you figure out who is that person that was sitting next to me at church. Well, there are times when in, in my office, I like to look back through those directories and just remember the people who invested in my life. Many who are not here any longer, they're in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about what they meant to me. 
That's the same thing the people of God would do as they came across these list of names in places like this in Nehemiah. They would scroll through the names and remember, these are the people who sacrificed for the city. These are the people God chose to occupy the city. These are the people that represent God's faithfulness. And God's promises are still displayed in his people today. From generation to generation, God's faithfulness is nothing without his people. He displays his faithfulness in flesh and blood people. And today, from Richmond to the ends of the earth, God is displaying his faithfulness in this moment. On the Lord's Day, people who have gathered today in basements, people who have gathered today in huts, people who have gathered today in multi-million dollar facilities, people who are gathered today in warehouses, God is displaying his faithfulness in people, flesh and blood, who are coming to hear the word of God, who are coming to declare his praises. The church, which Jesus declares, is a city on a hill. And right now, we are that city scattered throughout the globe from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people with addresses, people with names. And if you are here today, you literally swim in names from age to age throughout history. You are swimming in names of God's faithfulness. And you here today, your name means something in light of God's faithfulness. Your name, your family, your job, the way you serve this church, you, your name is in the list of God's names that will echo throughout eternity of his faithfulness. You see what you're a part of? Isn't it amazing that God includes our name in the story of his faithfulness? Praise his name today for that. But here's something else I like to remind myself of. Not just the people who have impacted my life in the past, but I also like to think a lot about the future. And one quote that that I remind myself quite often of, it's simply this, 100 years, all new people. In a hundred years from now, this right here will include none of us, and there will be all new people, hopefully not sitting in a warehouse, something a little nicer, but in a hundred years from now, all new people. Remind yourself of that, that that this doesn't last forever, and you you don't even get a hundred years. Most of us don't. A few of us here might. But but you only get this time. And so 100 years from now, when people see your name, what are they going to think of? By the way, where are they going to see your name? In what context will they see it in? Maybe archived giving records. What will your name say about the faithfulness of God? Maybe Maybe they'll see your address 
that's been changed to move from Richmond to somewhere around the world for the sake of the gospel and they will see your name and they will see a story attached to it. Maybe it's on an adoption deed where you said we're going to reflect the gospel and we're going to take into our home children who need a family. Maybe it's on a, a, an Awana book in the back of someone's closet and there's dust all over it and someone opens it up and they see your name as you sign off on a child memorizing the very word of God and they see your name, will they be able to connect your name to Jesus' name? Will they be able to connect the story behind your name to Jesus' story? What will your name represent? How will you be faithful to the faithfulness of God? We see in chapter 12 as the text continues, more names, more names. In verses 1 through 26, we see names that are kind of moving in a direction toward praise. We see a list of people who are occupying the city, and then we see names of people who are given responsibility to lead worship in the city. In this section, we see a list of priests and Levites, and one of the things the people of God were to notice as they read through those names is that God sustained the priesthood. Through exile and captivity, we still have servants of God, priests, who are serving us. But also in this section, we notice this title called singers. And David, who was a, King David, who was a musician himself, had appointed Levites to be singers and musicians. I can't say musicians today. Players of music. And when the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, was taken to Jerusalem, and it was going to occupy, it was going to be in the city permanently, in the city of Jerusalem. In that moment, David, who loved music, and he loved to celebrate, he appointed 4,000 players of music, musicians, let me try it again, to lead the Ark back to the city. And so 4,000 singers and musicians are leading the ark back into the city. And later on, this this number was kind of pared down to 288, I can't say it, players of music, people who played instruments. And so you go from the 4,000 to the some 200 They were to be even more skillful as Solomon's temple was built. And yet all of these musicians and singers were to be ordained and they were to spend five years in training. But their role was to announce through music and singing the presence of God as it entered the city or as the people came for sacrifice. They were to announce and celebrate. Yes, crank up the band. Everybody get to singing. The presence of God is here. Everybody sing to the Lord. This was their role. And we see these list of names. It's very important that the people gather around the temple, gather in the city for praise. And then we get down to verse 27, and there's going to be a specific day of praise in the life of the city. Notice verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So they're going to have a special day where they recognize this is a holy wall 
They understand the role of the wall is to set them apart from the people of God. And we would think it's just a wall. But remember, it represents God's faithfulness. It separates them as God's holy people. And they're going to set the wall apart. And so they sought out the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem. So all of the towns, all of the villages, anyone who's a Levite, you come back because we are going to, notice, celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, with harps, with lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together in the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of Nepopathite and also from Beth Gilgal and the region of Geba and Asmapheth, I'm trying, and for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. And so these singers, they, they had began to occupy the outskirts of the city. And so there's going to be a day of celebration. And so they say, go get all of the Levites who fit in this category of music and singing and bring them back to the city because we're going to have a day of celebration and tell them to get their instruments. This is going to be a worship service as we dedicate the wall. Notice verse 30. And the priest and the Levites purified themselves. And they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Notice the symbolism here. This is a set-apart place that is to be set apart to God. And by the way, the worship that is about to happen is to be set apart. This is to be distinct. Something different is happening here. And one of the things we see is it is to be full of gladness and thanksgiving as they see God's faithfulness to them. It is to bring joy in their life. And we've gone throughout Nehemiah where there has been despair. There has been repentance. They have grieved over their sin. They have worried about their enemies. And here they're going to celebrate. No, God did it. God brought about this wall. God has been faithful to us. And then notice what Nehemiah does down in verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Thanks. Now what's interesting about this word thanks here and thanksgiving here and how it's connected to choir. In the Hebrew, it actually almost means that the people themselves were the thanksgiving. They were the choir giving thanks, and they themselves were thanksgiving, which is significant in light of what the people are about to see. And so he takes these two choirs, he takes these two thanksgivings, and notice what he does in this section. He begins to lead them from verse 31 to 39 Nehemiah and Ezra begin to lead the two choirs in opposite directions around the wall of the city. And there's these two great processions as the priest Ezra, the governor leader Nehemiah, leads the choirs in opposite directions and then they meet at the temple. And so as the people see the choirs, what are they going to do? They're going to give thanks. The people are literally the thanksgiving. They are literally the praise themselves. And as they march around the city, they actually begun at a place called, began at a place called the Dung Gate. 
That's an appropriate term because it was the lowest part of the city. And they, so they moved from the lowest part of the city all the way around in two great choirs to finally meet at the temple for worship. And can you imagine as these two great choirs, hundreds of people who are marching and singing and the music is playing as they are walking by gate after gate after gate after gate, house after house after house that is being rebuilt and they are giving thanks. They are glad. There is joy. And can you imagine as they begin to close in together and they begin to to look at one another from across the city and they begin to sing over the city? Can you imagine the echoes? Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the climax as they finally meet at the temple, the most holy place, and every square inch meant something to every person gathered in the city as they heard the choirs of thanks echo. I notice verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. They meet there for worship. And Nehemiah says, and I and half of the officials with me. Verse 31, there's trumpets. 42, there's singers. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Notice how the text says, for God made them rejoice with great joy. How did God make them rejoice? They saw one another. They heard one another. There was a tangible expression of what God had done in the music, in the singing, in the flesh and blood people, and it caused them to praise him. God produced great joy through his people. God was faithful in the flesh and blood people. And here, notice the text continues. And the women and the children, they also rejoiced. And notice how it ends there. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now, during this time, there was no traffic on the streets. There was no TVs. There was no music being played, no AirPods. So if you were outside of Jerusalem, you heard all of the commotion. You heard all of the chaos. We lived in Lexington. We lived, actually it was some ways away from Commonwealth Stadium or Kroger, whatever it is now. And, and we could hear when games were being played over there. And we could hear when someone would, would score a touchdown. We would hear the crowd cheer and then we would see it on TV. Can you imagine living outside of Jerusalem? Can you imagine if you were one of the enemies of God and you began to hear God's faithfulness echo in the city? And for the people, it becomes real. All of the stories, all, all of the things that their parents have passed on to them, all of a sudden become real in this city. As you know, my, my family, we're Tennessee fans, obviously, today. Pretty big win yesterday. But for most of my kids' life, I've had to tell them, no, our football team is actually really good or was really good. We're not as pathetic as what you're experiencing right now. There were some amazing players. There were some amazing games. There were some, we won championships. We were, we were really good at football at one time. And they don't believe it until I take them to the stadium. And not that they've seen a lot of amazing games recently. 
But they began to walk around and they began to see the history. They began to walk around and they began to see pictures of players and they, they began to see, okay, this is a real place. And inside of the stadium, they see there are other Tennessee fans. We're not the only ones. There are thousands of them. And then there are cheers and there are music. And they're like, yes, this is real. And some of you wonder, how in the world did you, did you teach your kids to be Tennessee fans? Well, it takes a lot of discipleship. It takes a lot of intentionality. But I'll tell you this, it's always culminated on walking into that stadium and they can't help but love it. And the same thing should happen here. All of the stories come alive on this day. All of the history becomes real in this moment in the flesh and blood people. And you look around and you see it. I was talking to a friend in the back a few weeks ago and I asked him a question. I was like, could you, could you look this up for, for me? And he said, I don't bring my phone to church anymore. I begin to ask why. He says, because I want to actually rest on the Lord's day. And I want to actually be present with the people of God. I I want to actually be here. And here inside the city of Jerusalem, the people looked around and they could not help but hear and feel and experience the, the, the faithfulness of God in real people. And this day should root you in this story that comes alive. And you need to be present here. This has got to be, as we see here, a holy experience. Notice the people purified themselves. They purified the city. And they walked in for a holy experience. It was different from anything they had experienced until that moment. And Sunday after Sunday, this has to be different Because you are listening to a lot of artificial noise, a lot of digital, uh, a lot of digital junk, and you walk into here and you need to look around in flesh and blood, look people in the eyes, and actually feel something that's real, and actually hear something that's real around you to be reminded of this the story of God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ is real as the person sitting next to you. It's not fake. It's not artificial. It's not virtual. It's real. Feel it. And your joy is dependent upon it because it pulls you away from the anxiety and the worry of the fakeness and it latches you to something that's eternally real. And the people feel it in the song. They feel it in the music. So I want you today to begin to see God's story in the families around you. Friends, the way people are serving here today, and the music, this story echoes in this warehouse and all of the sounds. And maybe for you, just like when you go to the table for a family dinner, no screens allowed. Maybe that's something we need to do here so we can actually feel and see and hear something that's real. I'm going to summarize the next section because I think it's 11. So, verses 44 through 47. What the people of God have done here is they are worshiping in the city, but there's still one thing as they gather at the house of God, the temple. The temple needs to be provided for, and we talked about all of this last week. And so in this moment, if there's going to be worship and sacrifice in the temple, 
They have to go to the storehouses. They have to get out the sacrifices. They have to make sure everything is in place. And we begin to see here in this section that there is a fully restored, functioning temple in Jerusalem. And so sacrifices can happen. People can worship in Jerusalem because the temple is being provided for. When we get to the end of this section, we see in total there were over 1,100 priests. There were 284 Levites. There were 172 gatekeepers, 288 singers who were gathered and working and serving in the temple. Now that meant something to them. It was one thing to see all the people occupied the city, but once they got around to the temple, the question is, are we going to be able to offer sacrifice? And they saw the priest serving there, a thousand and something priests serving there. They saw the singers singing there. They they see the gatekeepers protecting the temple. And they begin to see that this temple is back up and running. And notice what they what they do. They rejoice. They rejoice for what God has done. They're happy. It's not as though after all we've been through and now we occupy the city and we have to pay for the priest to serve. We have to pay for the Levites to serve. And by the way, you've added singers, you've added staff to the the function of the temple and now we have to provide for them. No, they're, they're offering, they're tithes and offering because they remember how important the temple is. Remember this about the temple. A holy God cannot live without, with his people unless something or someone dies. The price of sin is death. And so without the sacrifice and slaughter of animals, the temple, God's presence can't rest with his people in the temple. And so they're gathered around the temple and they see it. Yes, God is with us. They see the smoke going up from the sacrifices. God is with us. And so not only are they praising because they hear praise, now they are praising because of the presence of God among them. A fully functioning temple displayed God's faithfulness in a restored people. God was present with them, with his people in his city. And this homecoming was not to be lost on them. Can you imagine this moment as they have only heard stories and they've been in exile and now they live in the holy city and they see it all around them? It is only to produce greater faithfulness in them. And again, you see something more amazing here in this metal warehouse and on these concrete floors. You see the very temple and presence of God here today. By faith in Jesus Christ, when we believe in Jesus Christ, his cross and his resurrection, God gives us his presence. It's not at a temple. You become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look around the room. Everyone here today who believes in Jesus Christ represents God's presence. And then together, we are the new house of God as the church. As the people were aghast and amazed, the temple is functioning. You see something even greater here today. And you are to walk in week after week and be amazed by it. We have the audacity to say the presence of God is with us. 
more so than it was in the holy city of Jerusalem. The presence of God lives in us sinners. Because of the cross, our sins have been forgiven. The presence of God lives within us. And we look around and we see something more amazing. And it is to call singing. It is to call celebration. And then we leave and we go out as exiles in a world held captive by sin and death. And then guess what we do next week? We return again for a homecoming. And every week you are to gain momentum as you gather. The same way the people of God who remembered the years of exile and captivity week after week, you remember what it's like to struggle with sin. You remember what it's like to struggle in a world cursed with death. And you walk into this room and you see people. You see people and you say yes. And you see God's faithfulness and you see yes. And you see God's presence and you say yes. Look. And you are only gaining momentum. I'll never forget post-COVID, and I hate talking about 2020, and you know that about me. It makes me want to vomit. But I remember the first greeting time that we had in this place after not having a greeting time for so long. Now, some of you couldn't stay away from each other anyway. It wasn't a big deal to you. But it was kind of like an official, formal, we didn't tell anybody I don't remember if I just decided to do it in the moment or not. But we said, stand and greet one another in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you had not done that for months and months and months and months. And there were audible gasps of joy. Some of you couldn't greet one another because you had to sit down and gain composure. And I, I stood up here with Julie and Clay and we just, we were so thankful. Look, look at God's faithfulness. And you know what that moment was to do for us? It was so we would never take it for granted ever again. And it was to gain momentum for another homecoming. And yet, how often do we still take it for granted? Someone asked me, they said, do you know that Christmas is on Sunday this year? Are we going to have church? <laughs> covid no church, Christ, no church? That doesn't make sense. Why would we take this for granted? We should look, that's what the people of God will never take it for granted again. We're going to gather in this city and we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to hold tight to his faithfulness and we're going to be a faithful people. And this moment was to gain momentum for a better moment that's coming for all of us. You see, the restored Jerusalem here is to lead us to another city. A city where the redeemed, restored people in Jerusalem and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ become one under his authority. And all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't just enjoy the presence of God here in this world cursed with sin. They enjoy the presence of God in the city. And the old Jerusalem and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ become the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 20, God brings heaven to earth, and there is a new creation, and we gather in this holy city 
as those who will gather under the holy king's authority. And this city is not built with our hands, and the wall around it is not built by us. It is being prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has told us and promised us, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you to myself. And he has purified this city with his cross, and he has raised this city up from the dead in his resurrection. And we will enter as a kingdom of priests. And yet we will not march to a temple. We will not march to an altar. We will march to a throne and serve our king forever. And you know what will produce praise? The multitudes and multitudes of voices that will be like rushing oceans of worship directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And our little sounds here today are to cause us to long for that day when we are overwhelmed with God's faithfulness in his presence and we will see and we will hear his faithfulness and maybe at times we'll look to see our names but it won't be in a phone book because Revelation 21, 27 says The citizens of heaven are only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And there we will see our name for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And in the city of faithfulness, we will see his faithfulness.